Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Business Brew. I'm your host, Bill Brewster. This episode features Josh Horowitz and Liz Gulliver of Kunick. I'm not going to give a uh, long preview of this pod because I think it's a good one and y'all should just put it on and listen. Josh and Liz are great and I wish them much future success. Some bysiders that have started a venture and I think it will be an enjoyable conversation for you to listen to. This episode is sponsored by Bastia Partners. Bastia is a boutique investment bank founded by Nader Afshar, a friend of the pod. Nader is described as a connector, high integrity, a low-key Byron Trot, and the rare investment banker who truly cares about alignment of interests. I appreciate Nader's willingness to allow me to do some due diligence checks on him while we were discussing Bastia sponsoring the show, and I appreciate Bastia's support of the pod. As always, none of this is financial advice. All of the information contained in this program is for entertainment purposes only. Please consult your financial advisor before making investment decisions and do your own due diligence. Josh Horowitz and Liz Gulliver, how are you doing? We are. I'm, yeah, I'm doing great. How are you doing, Bill? Well, we just got done talking about how I'm a mess, but uh, I'm great. (laughs) (laughs) So... I I think it would be helpful uh, to frame the conversation to talk about where you both came from, and then we'll get into like what you're doing now, if that makes sense. So Liz, do you want to give some uh, career background? And then, uh, I don't know, if you want to get into it, get into it. But I don't know. I, I think it's good to frame where you're coming from and where you're going. I love it. And I'm much younger than Josh. So I have way less career background. To talk I like about. it. <laughs> no, kidding. Josh and I both came from finance. I was in investment consulting before, went to business school, which is where I had the great pleasure of meeting Josh and now my co founder. After school, well, during school, I worked in hedge funds. And after school, I went to Citibank and worked with them in primarily treasury and risk in three different offices, New York. Banamex in Mexico City for three years, and then Miami. And it was after the location back to Miami that I finally ended my career in finance and pivoted into Kunik, which we'll dive into in a minute, but I'll let Josh share his background first. Yeah, so it's funny. My career has taken me from like the end of a company to now the beginning of a company is like a cool way to think about it. So I started on the buy side. I worked at Perry in like 2006 doing risk arb and merger arb which was super fun and then i ended up at city's prop desk which was lord of the flies and then (laughs) i worked for or then i went to columbia with liz and i I did the value investing program there and then worked for a a deep a deep value buy side firm actually in, in vancouver with a global mandate which was super cool and then went and started a company with Liz. So it went from like the end of a company's life from like risk arb, you know, they're they're dead to like deep value fundamental five year hold type of stuff. And then took the plunge to start my own business, which is a wild ride. I like it. I think <laughs> I, I don't know. You and I had interacted a number of times, but uh, we started to really interact around the curate time, right? When I sent a write-up and you were like, this is basically the write-up I did three years ago, just so you know. (laughs) Yeah, I think I sent it to you. Yeah, you did. Yeah, (laughs) because I started looking at it when they were like around Zulily and it was probably in like the low mid-20s or something at the time. And and it's so funny how like the theses are like the exact same. Yeah. It just happened to be that you you were buying it, you know, 
60% cheaper than when I was looking at it, or at least stock price. I don't know if the fundamentals changed that much. Yeah, I was wild. I was wild. And, but it comes back. Like, you know, it's funny too. Like, I'm looking, you know, people were so bold up on like CVS, I remember probably like a year ago. And like the thesis was the same. Yeah. So I, the sh- short answer is that timing matters. But a lot of these things, it's so interesting. Well, we were just in Atlanta at a conference and we ran into a business school friend who's still in finance. Uh-huh. <laughs> I mean, you can tell the story better, but you, after too many beers, still stole his punchline. <laughs> Yeah, we we walked in from a dinner and there was a guy that was in the value program with me. I, I was like, man, that really looks like Eric Liz. And she's like, I don't know. And then he like screamed and shouted and drew us in. And he was down there pitching a bunch of, uh, he works for, they're like smid cap type of investors. And, and it was really, he's like pitching me these thesis. I was like, oh, is it it's just because it's an inflation hedge? He's like, you mother, you know, like a horse. And like, and like, but it was like, you still got it. You know, you can still distill theses. Like, I think that's one of the things, like the, the more seasoned you are, the more quickly you can just kind of figure out exactly what the thesis is and why he was pitching it. But it was pretty funny. Yeah, I think he was looking at like a pricing plus inflation type hedge business. And I was like, oh, of course, like, yeah, that makes sense. It's uh, they're popular now. Inflation is not going away. I said it's like the new COVID. It just kind of lingers. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Now we're gonna get a little banner. <laughs> Charming. Yeah, Spotify is gonna give us a banner <laughs> that warns everybody that I said the word. But whatever. <laughs> we're cool with it. So, uh, so what? What made the two of you get together and decide to start this company? And what does the company do? Is probably also a good question. Yeah, the company does culture development. So we partner with employers to help them build sustainable, scalable cultures that can work from anywhere. So when everybody's working remote and for everyone with inside an organization, and we'll dive into much more what that looks like, but it's a lot of customized programming, consulting. And the real, the real answer to where it came from is I was in LA with my husband who also went to business school, having dinner with Josh, trying to set him up with a friend who that didn't work out, but instead we got a company out of it. Um, and we were, we were talking about all of our friends from business school, where people were going, how many people we were, I guess what Josh, three years out of business school at that point, And how many people just, you know, a handful of years out were already leaving their companies for various reasons, which got us talking about company culture, what we liked or, or didn't like at our company cultures and what we were seeing. Yeah. Yeah. We were both in unique positions where like I had joined I just, we don't even need to get into it, but I, I joined a new fund in LA to be the right-hand man of this guy who then promptly got fired. And then I just basically asked to get paid out, which, and so we were both at these weird transition points. Liz too was thinking about leaving. And I think where the conversation really got down to was, you know, I spent, I don't know, like 12, 13 years working on the buy side. And I grew up playing team sports. I was always that orientation of a, mindset. I was less like the, even when I played tennis, I like playing doubles more than I like playing singles. Mm. And I never had a good boss, (laughs) like ever. I I never had a good manager. And I think Liz was feeling the same way, especially being a woman in finance. They were like, who are the, who are the leaders in, at a big bank that are women who are moms who are talking about it? Like there was none of that kind of like human element, like in the buy side, what makes you a great analyst maybe can transfer to a big PM and that's a big switch. But then all of a sudden, if you're a portfolio manager and you're running a team of, I don't know, five people or 10 people, you're also like a people manager. And like, that's a skill that's not ever taught yeah. at all. 
uh, and then even as you move up, if you're going to start running a fund and you have 150 people or, you know, if you're a larger mutual fund, you could have, you know, thousands, like that's a totally different skill set. But I, it, it was so incongruent with my experience that were like, this is just so messed up. And we were seeing this be an issue uh, across the board as well. So we're like, we're like, something's really wrong. Let's dig in to figure out what this is. And how do you actually start creating a different type of culture inside companies where people can really grow? And I think that's a problem that I think people our age, I'm almost turning 40, Liz is in her mid thirties. And I'd say people our age and younger have a very different orientation to their relationship between work and life and family than people our parents' age. Yeah. I, well, that, and I think, yeah, sorry, go no, ahead. No, no, I, I was just thinking as you guys were talking, I, I was just thinking that like, I noticed, you know, there's a lot of times that like the best salesperson gets, uh, gets promoted, but the best salesperson is probably best suited as a salesperson and not necessarily a manager. Yeah, this is the uh, P- the Peter principle. You get you get promoted to your level of competence. You get what promoted to your level of incompetence, incompetence. or competence? Yeah, no incompetence. No, huh. unfortunately, incompetence. Interesting, right? Because you got pushed up into a level where you can no longer go. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. And they're not usually good teachers. The people who get promoted up are not usually very empathetic. They're not usually great teachers. Especially as Josh was saying, you know, as a woman in finance, what he didn't say is I was thinking about having kids at that point in time. And I think, yes, there's been a generational shift in how people think about it. But I also think in general, in more traditional industries like finance, law, companies like that, people still today are not talking that much about, okay, this is what that might look like for your career. These are ways you might come back from a you know paternity leave or maternity leave and reintegrate in. And here's how you think about that. And when you don't have people to have that conversation with, it's really hard to see how you're going to progress and keep going. And consequently, you just see a lot of people continuing to off-ramp and you hear companies talk about, we need more female leaders or we need more diversity at the top. But there's a big gap in terms of how they're continuing to make those people feel like part of the conversation, like part of the inclusive culture in there. And I think that's what we, without totally realizing it at the time, that's what we were talking about at dinner and what led us to think, gosh, this has got to be not only a better outcome for companies and employers, but also just better for business if you can retain talent and find ways to keep them in there instead of replacing them. Some of the women that I talked to that were in law had an interesting insight to me, at least, where they were like, the only women that we see that were successful, right? And this is, uh, I don't know, probably nine years ago, eight years ago or whatever, maybe only five, but whatever. They all blend together. (laughs) They said, like, basically, like the women that that were senior were women that were not supported. So they almost were like, you know what? Screw you. You have to go through what I went through in order to make it here, too. Uh, Like nothing's given. Right. Which I thought was kind of an interesting insight. Well, we so the the real backstory on Kunik, too, is that now we do culture development. We started by supporting working parents and really thinking about how to keep because that was our demographic is our demographic. It's also the biggest off-ramp for all employers is working parents, primarily women, but parents in general. And there's almost nothing out there that focuses on how to keep that talent over time. Any kind of benefit that's out there is really focused on one segment, women during one particular period, pregnancy, and sometimes immediate post-birth. But to your point, when we started the company, Josh and I, we don't come from HR. We don't come from benefits. We come from finance, as we said. So we were complete outsiders. But as finance geeks, we did a lot of due diligence and we talked to thousands of working parents and we did keep hearing a lot. 
well, I have a female manager and she has kids, but she's very much, you know, stiff upper lip. You've just got to do it because I did it and you've got to get through here. And we actually heard that really pretty often. So I'm not surprised that you heard that from lawyers. That's certainly, I think, again, probably more so in, in finance and law than you might tech, for example. But that's something we heard a lot of was, you know, this, there wasn't anything to support me. So why should we change things now to support you? Which is, uh, you know, something to, that you ought to push against and takes time to shape and change. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, it's kind of interesting how things like that can, can uh, continue to perpetuate themselves, even though it's, it's like objectively the person that went through it didn't like it, but they also don't want to change it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is everywhere. I mean, think about like, like, I don't know. I, I somehow avoided working in investment banking, but like, it's hazing. It's you're joining a fraternity when you're like right out of college. Like we're going to, you're going to do nothing till five o'clock on a Friday. And then all of a sudden an MD is going to drop a thing and say, I need to buy Monday. And all of a sudden your weekend's ruined and you're working 48 hours straight. But like, it's the same culture. And it's like, how do you shift these things away from every, everybody knows that's not the right way to do it, but it gets perpetuated. Yeah. I, uh, the, my man, Frankie four fingers on Twitter, he had an interesting comment that, that sort of like from the MD side defended that culture a little bit, I think, but, but I think he would acknowledge that it it's not, uh, not great. I, it was wild to, I mean, I sat on the floor with the, with the investment banking guys and like, it was just crazy. Like from three to five, they'd have nothing to do. And at five o'clock, it's like, all right, turn these books, uh, you know, quick. And then, you know, you go yeah. in at midnight and they're still there. It's nuts. Yeah. I mean, I never, I mean, the great thing about the buy side is that like, you know, there's an independent scoreboard, right? And if I, I never worked with anybody that could work three hours a week, but if you could work three hours a week and put up numbers, no one would care. Yeah. Right. So, but you're, it's a different, it's a different role, right? I mean, the bank, banks are service industry and God, God help you if you're like the legal associate on the other end of that deal too, because then you just get like the waterfall. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's yeah. a that's a brutal. Uh, I don't know. The lawyer lifestyle is very very interesting, especially at big firms. So how do you how do you go in and try to talk to a big firm and say, look, you can still keep what makes you successful, but also adopt some of these principles that I think uh, would be defined as more modern. It's a good question. A good question. So I think it's probably helpful to like take a step back a little bit. Yeah, I think I'll go anywhere you guys want. That's the I just no, basically but, yeah. <laughs> no. I love that, but I, I guess what I want to set the context is I think that like the world is really changing, and I think everybody. I, it's actually you know Larry think said this at the end in his annual letter, which was nothing's been more profoundly changed in a lot and, you know, due to COVID than the relationship between employers and employees. And I think that's, that's clear. You're having the great resignation. You're having, you know, social unrest, all these different issues that are happening in society are in how we work are impacting, obviously the employers in the labor market in like a, a massive way. And I think what's very clear too is also you have you now millennials are going to be 70, 75% of the workforce. So you have a lot of different macro things at play, which are impacting work and if COVID rapidly accelerated all those changes. And we see that, right? I don't, no one's going to debate that. So what's interesting though, is that McKinsey did a really cool study in October and they asked employees, what do you value in on your employer? 
And then they ask employers, what do you think your employees value? Hmm. And obviously compensation is critical, right? That's a, that's table stakes. But what was really interesting is that there was a huge mismatch between what employers thought employees wanted and what employees wanted. Hmm. And what employees wanted, simply put, would be basically to feel seen, valued, and heard. And obviously valued as compensation to some extent, but it's also like having career growth and learning opportunities and valued, you know, like the scene and you want to be connected to your peers. You want to be part of a culture. You want to be part of something bigger, right? Bigger is something than yourself working as a team to execute. And that's what companies don't necessarily have had not focused on. Right. And so I think that's a huge shift in how people are oriented to their jobs. And if you think about really that kind of retention piece, which has become so critical, that comes down to recreating a workplace culture that's going to work in line with those values of what people actually want. And I think there was a huge disconnect. I think people overweighted compensation probably to a huge degree. They overweighted perks. But like, it's not what actually keeps people at an organization. Hmm. And we just attended this conference last week in New York City. And it was a culture conference run by a pretty large executive search firm. And what was fascinating to me until this was that it was like, it was a huge amount on the buy side, a huge amount of private equity funds, big banks. And I'm like, the diversity inclusion teams at those companies is like roles and businesses. I never would have thought, you know, if you went back 10 years, like no way they would, that was even a conference I would have. It was like 500 people's packed. Hmm. So I think the big question from a company's perspective is with remote and hybrid work here to stay, how do we rethink culture? and what we do as a company. And the answer is you have to be very intentional about those opportunities for your people to connect, to learn from each other, and actually like be feel like they're part of something. And so the way we approach this with our partners is effectively we think in really two to three big, big buckets. And one is, what are the shared experiences of your people? What are the shared challenges of your people? And what are the shared goals that you have as an organization? Mm-hmm. And so that framework, you can almost think about as like interlocking kind of, um, you know, Venn diagram is going to collectively build culture and create outcomes. And we can get into the whole ROI of retention and of culture and all these types of things. But long story short is that it's wildly impactful. What we actually do around that is we, our main product is something is that we call Kunik Conversations. And you can think of Kunik conversations as intentional moments of connection, learning, and growth inside of a company. These conversations are facilitated by Kunik in partnership with subject matter experts. And this is kind of a sidetrack, but for since I know the audience pretty well as being one of them, think of our expert as like a Gerson Lerman group of, of culture consultants that can go in any or TGIS now, but like not transcripts. Stream. Stream, yeah, yeah. Sorry, are they a sponsor? No, yeah. well, yeah, right, they sorry. did sponsor yeah, me, yeah, and yeah, I partner great. with we them. I them. do some interviews for them, <laughs> which is fun. Well, great. So then, stream. So, but we align ourselves with subject matter experts who are gurus in their field, and this can be really anything where work, life, or family intersect. So it could be around leadership and empathy and communication skills. It could be around diversity, equity, and inclusion, or it could also be about. How do like a good intersectional conversation about how do I talk to my kids about race? It could be what am I missing, Liz? I'm trying to think of 
ones that we just Well, I did. think a lot of what we're seeing is, is also tied specific to industry now. And I think right. what, what we're starting to see is that, to your point, companies don't have a choice anymore about listening to this or not, thanks to the wildly high amounts of turnover. And I think in large part because people coming out of grad school and undergrad now don't only have finance as an option, right? There's a lot of startups they can go to. There's a lot of tech they can go to to get paid pretty well and live a pretty good lifestyle. So for companies to stay competitive, it's the one side is yes, creating that culture. The second side that people always want is career development, growth and and pathways to greater learning and prosperity. And that's where we're starting to see companies think about, okay, how do we continue to upskill these people in a way that is not logging in to another platform, to another e-learning module, but where they're learning with peers and learning transferable workplace skills. And so that's what we're seeing. For example, if you take associates at a finance company, maybe you're thinking about how do they ask better questions? How, when they're in a meeting, how can they think about using their 45 seconds in front of somebody higher up to really ask that more provocative question or to really respond well to a question and not be caught you know, flat-footed and to shine in that moment? And so we're seeing we were talking about law. We're seeing law firms think about that with associates. How can they upskill them when they're not partners yet, when they're not in that? I think we're seeing companies start to think up and down seniority levels in a way that they hadn't been before. And I think a lot of that has been the changes to workplace that have happened during COVID. But again, also just companies realizing that old ways are no longer cutting it for a new generation of employees. Hmm. If you could teach me how to not smirk at times, I would pay you a lot because that has gotten me in trouble. <laughs> Yeah, we can definitely work on that. Or at home rolling. and at the office. I have been <laughs> Yeah, no, I can't help you with your kids. I smirk at my kids all too often. But at the office, we can help it's you. More, sure. It's more at my, my wife. And then she's like, what are you smirking <laughs> at? And But I I, uh, I don't know. I just got some uh, ADD medication. And I'm doing less smirking and more paying attention. <laughs> so maybe we'll see. I don't know. God bless big pharma. That Well, yeah, I don't know. Hey, I got to get something else. Anyway, I digress. So. You know, it's funny because I can kind of hear some older people that I've talked to in the past be like, this is just millennial garbage, you know, and, and I don't, I don't think it is, but I think that's the barrier to getting people that like higher ups to accept that like work should be a little bit of a culture, right? As opposed to just somewhere that you go grind it out. But back in the day, I think it was. Yeah, well, it's like, yeah, it's got to shift. But the, I mean, here's the perversity. And like, you know, speaking again to your crowd, and it, I don't want to like keep on, you know, railing on on the buy side or hedge funds or anything like that. But anybody with anybody with a long term orientation, and from an investment perspective, like culture should be a component of that process, right? Like, Patagonia is not public. But like, if you could buy Patagonia, you probably would be really interested, right? Like, Huge flywheel, great culture that retain people, that create product. Like it's so intuitive, and you get it. But like, why don't you bring it to your own company? Those are the cognitive dissonance there. But you know, if you have a, <laughs> if you're building a, or you're building a company, you need to attack and retain talent, and you want to have the shared missions and the vision to execute on your goals, right? And that also creates a culture of innovation would be part of that too. Like why is Apple, why are certain companies have been so successful? It's because they have the culture that builds systems that enable them to create progress and create alignment and then grow successfully. But you see companies fall off the rails when there's massive one, like churn, obviously is a huge issue. Like, like take all these startups. Now everybody's the 
you know, spacky kind of startups where now everybody's underwater on their option pool and people are so worried about people leaving. Right? Yeah. Like what happens then? Like, do your, does your culture go toxic? Maybe, I don't know, but like, it should be a huge component and the data supports this wildly. I also think it just, listen, we, you know, our parents are obviously at the older generation of the workplace if they're still working today. So most of us are familiar with that kind of perspective and that view. And we also have worked for managers who feel that way or had bosses that feel that way. And I think that's something that's very real. I think we've we've never had four generations in one workplace before. So we've got boomers, we've got Gen X, we've got millennials, we've got Gen Z. The thing is, it's primarily a lot of boomers who feel that way and they're frankly outnumbered. So it goes both ways, right? It's a, a question of, yes, this is better for your bottom line. Yes, this is better for competition. Yes, this is better for long-term thinking. It's also just it starts to become survival mode. If you want to keep good talent in your company and you want your company to grow, you have to face how to think about these things. And not coincidentally, a lot of the work we do when we go into companies like financial organizations and law firms is thinking about how are we dealing with legacy stakeholders? How are we getting people on board who weren't on board in the beginning? Especially within even those upper echelons, you may have one or two champions and the vast majority may not agree with it, but might just kind of go along with it. How do you shift those mindsets is a huge part of the work we do. And I also think that at the end of the day, when they're looking at the data coming out, whether or not they think it's BS, when they look at the data, Gen Z is even more advocating for this, more bought in than millennials. And so I think the trends are pretty clear and how that keeps shifting across generations and who makes up the bulk of the workforce today is is well within millennial and Gen Z world. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Like, you know, I, I think that there's a lot of companies, Costco is an example, that traded a multiple that people would say, well, that's like, that's too high, right? It's overvalued. But it's like, yeah, but you know, culturally, it's not going to change. And therefore, you can kind of depend on what the business is going to be given its value proposition and its culture. So it deserves quite a premium to just some random company that looks like some cash flows on, a, on an Excel model, right? Like these are, mm -hmm. it's more bankable, I think. I mean, we're, Weren't you just saying that you wanted your kids to work at a Chick-fil-A franchise? Yes. Yeah. And why, why is that? Because it's it, the, the franchisee that I was talking to, who I hope will come on the program, was just an incredible person. And he was talking about how they execute and how they, how they run a drive-through and how they uh, get their consistency and how they train people up. And I was like, this is an incredible business to go learn from. Right. And they've created a phenomenal management and customer experience, which is, I would argue, that's culture, right? Like, you know, one of my favorite investing books, which isn't an investing book, is Danny Meyer's Setting the Table or Set the Table, mm. whatever that's called. Have you read that, Bill? No, I haven't. Do you know who he is? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so it's great. But like, you know, it's basically like you need to treat people really goddamn well. And that's you create a warm atmosphere. You greet them. You look them in the eye. You make people make you make people feel welcome. It's the same thing from your employees. What was funny it's, it's about the Chick Fil A thing is people were like, "The food's not even that good," and it's like, "Yeah, but it's not even really about the food. The food right. is a product that people can rely on, and the experience makes people happy. So it doesn't have to be the best chicken sandwich in the world. They crush. And that's what we're seeing though across the board, right? 
companies are, thanks to a lot of changes within the last few years, companies and leaders are being asked to tie their values, their missions in an outward facing way to customers than they ever had before. So it also goes to your point, you don't work at Chick-fil-A, but you know the culture. People know the culture. Josh mentioned Patagonia earlier. I don't work at Patagonia. I know the culture. More and more customers are also spending their dollars and choosing where to be clients, where to be customers based on what they see, hear, and know about the way that that company acts in the world, the way that they take care of their people. I mean, when you go back to that Patagonia model, what people think is they take care of their people, they take care of their customers, they take care of their world, and I want to get behind it. And that's why people think about it and know it. And more and more, I think we're seeing senior leaders on everything from social social justice movements to COVID, to return to work, to Ukraine, whatever the case may be, we've got a more global, more diversified, more spread out workforce than ever before. And that's forcing everything that happens in this world to impact employers. It used to be, you know, big multinationals were the beasts, behemoths, only in the realm of the super large. And they had very tailored to their EMEA office, their APAC office, their US office, even within that, maybe an East Coast and a West Coast. And it wasn't that connected. Now you can have a 10-person startup that's spread out all across the world. And all of a sudden, that company has to think about how are we taking care of our people in all these different places? And it goes from that 10-person startup up to the largest in the world. And so I think as we start having leaders have to think about how are we reacting? What are we reacting to, A? B, how are we reacting to it? C, how are we communicating that to our people and then to our customers? That forces changes in culture because otherwise you've got Twitter, you've got LinkedIn, you've got email, you've got everything to spread it out there that, hey, my company's not taking care of me. They're not doing this. And all of a sudden your clients and customers know about it too. And that's not a good look. Yeah, it's it's uh, interesting that you brought up multinationals. For some reason, all I could think about, and it's probably because uh, I, I had a negative experience, but is uh, AB InBev, right? And like that's that's a company that I think had a real, I mean, I, I I think it's factual that Budweiser was a hell of a brand. And I, I think that the way that they treated people, and I think that you, if you talk to people in St. Louis, you heard it like directly. And I think it was, it became evident that like, I just, I don't, I think people started to root for Budweiser to fail a little bit and it opened a big door for, you know, and craft is a big part of this, but it certainly made them more fragile than I think they'd like to admit. Absolutely. That, I mean, it's that kind of word of mouth gets out and it's not always, listen, not all of your employees are going to agree. People, you're seeing this now with companies, Citibank announced last week, unrelated to this, but since we're talking about finance stuff, Citibank announced last week that they're going to pay for employees in Texas and other abortion restrictive states to go and get treatments elsewhere. That's going to polarize some people within a bank, but it's a perfect example of how companies are taking stands on different things that are related to politics, related to global events, that comes back to how you treat your people, how you take care of your people, and what resources you're putting behind it. And it sends an outward-facing message to your clients, to your customers, about how you're willing to really put dollars, energy, time, and resources behind your people and take care of them as humans and not just employees. That's a cool stance by Citibank. I didn't realize that they had made that. Unsurprising that it's the only female CEO on Wall Street, but... Huh. Huh. Well, I think it's also important too to like, like there's a lot of, there's probably people listening and saying like, like there's this line between advocacy and taking care of your people. Yep. Kunick operates on taking care of your people and creating a a culture where people can feel like they're well-respected and heard. Then there's the element of advocacy 
which I totally can appreciate from an internal perspective. If you're the manager, like what is our stance? Do we have to react to every social issue in the world? And the answer is you have to figure that out yourself, but it, it can be no. And I don't think they're mutually exclusive. And I think a lot of people, you know, complain about wokeism or some of these elements of culture is like thinking about the advocacy perspective, but that's not, that's, that might be part of it, but that, you don't need to do that to still build a culture where your people are diverse and they feel supported and they feel like, you know, if you are a woman and having to get an abortion that you are, that we're going to take care of you because that's your choice and you can be able to do it, but also doesn't need to become a political thing either. And I think that's really important. Absolutely. To, yeah. I didn't even think of that on. as uh, as uh, political advocacy. I just kind of, I, I, I view uh, corporation as it should be by definition apolitical. So if you live in Texas and are not pro-life or need to get an abortion, having a corporation facilitate that for you. I mean, to me is, is sort of the corporation fulfilling its duty. And then if you're pro-life, don't get one, like whatever. Precisely. That would Each be person can make their own choice, but it allows you to feel seen, valued, and heard by your employer, which then ties you back to feeling like you are part of something bigger, part of a mission to Josh's earlier point on, on McKinsey. And it doesn't, I totally agree. It doesn't have to say you do one or the other. Each individual can make their own political stances, their own political choices. But the point is enabling that person as an individual and as a human, because it's those, at the end of the day, that's what brings everybody together, right? People want to feel those human connections. And I think what we saw, thanks to COVID, is when people got home, all of a sudden they said, oh, I'm not connected. But really, I don't know that that many people felt so connected in their in their offices as they were. I think we had already started to see tension, started to see people not connecting, started to see a bit of that lack of humanity. We did Really early into the pandemic, we worked with a tech firm in New York, and it was, to Josh's point, one of the calls on family. It turned out these two guys had worked in cubicles next to each other for three years, had sons that were born a month apart with the same name, and never knew that about each other. That's a pretty extreme example. But it was that kind of nuts, absolutely crazy. But it was that, that one's more extreme, but it's that we see this all the time when we open up the space to have these conversations is that, yeah, COVID forced that wide open and it it put a spotlight on that, but there had been a real lack of connecting as humans. And I think we started to see that, especially when you think about financial organizations and how people are usually compensated. We, as, as Josh said, we were at this conference for culture. We introduced um, the head of culture from SockGen, who is fascinating, and they're really putting a big effort behind culture, really investing deeply. But another company was up there and they were talking about how they're bringing everything back to teamwork. And they realized through the separation during COVID that they had been rewarding the behavior they didn't want, which is that they've been rewarding individual output versus team collaboration. They had been doing it for years and had driven individuals on how much can I personally put out, not what are the strengths on our team? How is our team communicating? How can our team work together to produce a better product? And they realized they hadn't been enabling their managers to run that kind of work for their team because they had been promoted based on their technical skills, not on their leadership skills, not on their ability to foster that kind of connection amongst their team. And so through COVID, they ended up doing kind of a whole reorg and thinking about how do we really foster that kind of collaboration because ultimately it produces a better product for our clients, which means we do better as a business overall. So it's not, I mean, it's not done out of the goodness of their heart. It's done out of the bottom line and driving driving that, that revenue but it also comes back to how are you creating the channels for that? And I think, you know, we have a, a, to the Larry Fink quote, we have a big opportunity here as organizations to rethink 
pretty dramatically how work gets done, how people work together and how we know each other. And it requires a lot of trust. And that trust comes back to knowing each other as humans and individuals. And that's really what we drive at. That's interesting. You know, this is this may sound corny, but I don't mean it in a corny way. I, I think some of what you're talking about is a little bit of what Zuckerberg's trying to accomplish with his version of the meta- metaverse. And like this, the getting to know and trust people, I think it's a big reason that like Twitter spaces has taken off because mm. you get to like hear somebody and you connect, right? And it's like another level of engagement. Yeah, well, like 100%. So this is a great segue into like, actually what we do. And I don't mean that as a plug, but it's like, it's the same idea. It's it's actually what you do in your podcast, right? I think you once described your podcast as like over like overhearing a really interesting conversation at a bar. Yeah, right. I think that's what you said. That's what I'd like to think. (laughs) I agree with that. And I agree with that fully. So what we do is create these intentional conversations that are interactive and expert led. So it will bring people together across divisions or across teams, or it could be within a team, but it could be, you know, the black employees at Google or the LGBTQ employees at Google, or it could be the leadership at Google. Think about any kind of vertical or cohort, but we bring them together to have a conversation. Let's say it's about psychological, creating psychological safety in your team, but it will be a conversation about all the different managers that are struggling with that. So they can learn from each other about what they're doing, what's not working, brainstorm together, but it's also going to be facilitated by an expert who has done that for a really long time. So we're really privileged to work with this woman. She's amazing. She spent like 20 plus years or 30 plus years. She was at a big Bay area. She was at Autodesk and she was the VP of engineering in the nineties as a woman, Hmm. which is like kind of mind blowing that, that, you know, a woman is running that team. So she has an incredible depth of knowledge around what that means and how to create it and what it's also like to be a woman in a male-dominated industry. We lead those conversations with women inside companies a lot. But it's as much about getting people to hear from each other as it is from an expert. And it's that two-way dialogue that leaves people with, we track a few things, but one of them is, do I feel more connected to my colleagues and to my peers as a result of having this moment and answers like 98% yes. (laughs) The other thing is, am I leaving with something that's practical and actionable that I can then use? Because I think a big problem with L&D or a lot of things is that it can be like a TED Talk, which is like, this is interesting concepts, but I'm never going to use it in my day-to-day or it might only become relevant in a really long time from now. So we also want to make it that it's very tangible and extractable, that you can like literally do something with it the next day. I mean, all the data too, and this goes back to what we're seeing in the workplace is that as a result of COVID, teams have grown incredibly small, Hmm. incredibly small. So if you're on the digital marketing division on like one particular product, like you're probably only talking to five people. Yeah, because you don't bump (laughs) into anybody in the office, right? Right, exactly. Hmm. So how do you... But then we also know that there's a lot of Zoom fatigue. We also know that everybody tried like these Zoom happy hours. Like that stuff failed. Like no one's doing that anymore. So what you have to do is create like intentional moments. We almost consider it like recess for the workplace. But like, why are we coming together? What's the purpose of us coming together? To also connect and share and learn from each other with purpose and with intention. Hmm. And that is what we're doing for companies. And that in aggregate will drive over the like, over the course of like programs with them that drives all these different ways. We, we focus on whole person support. So how do we support Bill 
the manager, Bill, the dad, Bill, the guy with ADHD, Bill, the guy that might be really feeling totally burned out. And so we would create multiple conversations. So a good example is we're working with a large real estate company. They are in the property. They're the largest HOA in the nation. They have about 12,000 employees. They have a management team who is kind of older people in Texas who are struggling with empathetic leadership in a remote and hybrid setting. They have property managers, thousands of them across the country. Their job is basically sitting between boards and tenants. They are largely 50-year-old women who are very diverse, who are also struggling. They're also caregivers, oftentimes sandwich generation. Hmm. They have tons of pressure. They have no boundary between being on-site or at home. They have employee resource groups, so those diversity groups who are basically not getting anything done because the last one is that everybody inside the organization is struggling with burnout because hmm. everybody's just overwhelmed. So Kunik comes in and would create four concurrent programs, one around empathetic leadership for that management team, de-escalation training for those property managers. How do I manage difficult conversations? How do I diffuse tense situations? How do I create better boundaries for myself? Employee resource groups. We take a very human-centered approach to a lot of the diversity and inclusion work. So it's like, well, let's have a conversation about what it means to have like corporate code switching. What happens if I'm you know, a Latin male and I go into a white office? Like, How am I changing who I am to be relevant or like do i should i be doing that let's have a conversation about you know talking about race with my family or we had a you know a good example too is we had a company is a dc-based nonprofit, and like we had an event with them on january 8th and january 6th happened and we pivoted to have a conversation like what does this mean to my family because of like what just happened in the country and then last like a, a series on burnout but not typically from the self-care angle but like what are the systems and structures that we as a company can put in place to start mitigating this for our employees? And we had like a thousand people on that first kickoff call. We got emails from employees saying, I'm so grateful that my company is doing this for me. I was bawling in a Walgreens parking lot because I wanted to listen to this. And I feel so honored and respected and that they're like appreciating how we feel right now. Hmm. And like, I don't know how you measure that data, but that's really impactful. But the idea is that the cumulative impact of that is that you can imagine, you know, one person participating in all four of those different conversations. They're connecting with different people inside the organization. They're up-leveling their skills, and they're also feeling supported as an individual, as a person, as a human. Yeah, I think you measure it over the long term in retention. I mean, I mean, it For seems sure. to me that in a tight labor market, this is the way I would choose to compete if I were running a company, right? I'd be like, fine, we're going to make sure our employees really like it, and they're going to tell their friends to come work here. 100%. I actually don't, I, you know, we have like a hidden cost of like culture calculator. So what's the ROI in our people? And so let's think about like the average tenure for so many people is only two to three years. And if you're in a tight labor market, let's say you're a white collar job, the cost to replace Bill is 200% of his annual salary between yeah, you got to look for somebody, look then somebody, maybe you hire a yeah. bad person, and then Onboard you got to, yeah. yeah. So you're like, hey, like, let's put in a program that's going to cost us X. If we can keep Bill, like, three months longer, like, the program's paid for itself. Maybe even a year. <laughs> maybe, right, a year is great, but three months you pay for the entire thing. Yeah. yeah. I think the, the thing that, that we're seeing and where we're hitting a resonance is, that's not new to employers, right? Sure. The labor market is tighter now, but the idea that replacing capital is is expensive is not new. Companies know that. What is new is that they know that it is no longer 
you know, being able to order seamless after 7 p.m., being able to get a taxi home, all of the perks that you get when you work in a finance job in a big city or any company, but it's a lot of not Facebook anymore. They said no moss. Not Facebook. No more. No more. But all of that kind of you get a free app. You can have this, you know, download into your meditation app. All of that stuff isn't working. It's not, they haven't seen any measurable improvement. And I my opinion, our opinion at Kunik is that that's because it doesn't tie you back to anything. Mm. You maybe download that app. Maybe you're probably getting a huge corporate benefit email from your employer, whoever set those things, right? You go in once a year when you've got to choose your health plan for your family, for yourself, whatever it is. And that's about it. And beyond that, you're not like, hey, what is my company giving me today? By and large. So really low use rates. It also is just a one-to-one. It is you at one specific moment on an app. It does not make you feel more connected to Bill more connected to Josh, more connected to your manager, more connected to the overall company. And I think that's where a lot of kind of perk-esque benefits haven't changed. They haven't driven tension. They're not moving the needle on how people talk about their company. It's not just retention, right? It's who you're bringing in the door. So are you bringing in your friends? Are you saying this is an awesome workplace? You're not like, wow, this workplace is amazing because I have 50% off to headspace. Like that, you know, that's not, that's not shifting how people think about it. Which isn't to say there there isn't a place for that kind of benefit. There is, but I what we're really seeing is to Josh's point, the tears, the laughs, the smiles. People want to connect with other people, and they don't have that many ways to do it. And they're spending a lot of hours at work, so to spend a lot of hours and feel like you don't know the people that you are not seen as an individual, that you are not connected to your team and your manager, it's a huge loss as an employer because it's, it's not overly complicated to fix it. It's just being intentional, deliberate, and creating the the spaces and the opportunity for it. Yeah. To the to my Facebook friends, I know you still have some benefits. I was exaggerating. <laughs> the uh you know it's interesting. Like what I what I'm thinking about as you guys are telling me this, or I should say y'all, I'm sorry, Liz. Is <laughs> quite all right. The um I it feels to me like you maximize the benefits of diversity through these conversations because you actually have conversations from people from different backgrounds that can actually like teach each other and that is beneficial, right? I mean, yeah. part of where I came from at BMO, I, I, I don't think this is controversial to say internally so if anyone's listening, maybe it's a, something to remedy. I don't know. But like a lot of the, a lot of the minority metrics were hit with like the secretaries, right? So how do you get the admins in conversation with the higher, you know, like upper management to actually learn from each other? And, I, and there are things that people can learn from each other. And there are like something that I've been like really, really upset about. Uh, with with what's going on with inflation is just like how it's going to hurt the people that are on the margin. And the thing that like I have, uh, I, I got to figure out some way to give back, but like um, early childhood education or, or child care, even like, like one-year-old care, right? Forget about education. Just somewhere that a parent can go like trust their child to be that's safe to me is... Um, like massively impactful to the community. So hopefully, you know, conversations can, can, I don't know, uncover some of those issues and, and help companies say, hey, 
maybe we should provide this because maybe it's holding back, you know, the, the parents that work here that, that can't think because they're so worried about what's going on to their kid this day or whatever. Yeah. I mean, like big picture, I think what's been lost in society and this is social media plays a big role. And it's like, we're all living in echo chambers, right? Like you are finding your tribes and you're really committed to working with them, but you don't, you, you're dismissive of other views. The issue with that is that I would go back to your bar analogy. If you're sitting at the bar and you have the opportunity to have a conversation with somebody who doesn't look like you or from a different walk of life, but you have that beer, you have that coffee, uh, odds are you're going to find they have a lot more in common than you do apart. And like, that's the big issue. And I think what we're doing in many ways is just enabling people to have conversations about the big things that matter to them in a psychologically safe way in a place that's protected from kind of that, like we've never, we've never had, never have had on the hundreds of conversations that we host with our partners, like anything go off the rails where it's like become a fight or anything like that. Cause it's all focused in the human center. It's like, we want to do better for our families. We want to do better for ourselves. We want to do better for the business. And that's the approach. And I think to your point about, I want to go back to your point about diversity because I, a big thing that we're seeing, and to be very clear, we're not a, we're not a, we don't consider ourselves a diversity and inclusion shop. That isn't really what we do, but it gets at what you were saying, something, which is that I think a lot of what's out there and especially in, in certain industries has been really focused on more of a check the box approach. Yeah. Do we have the, you know, do we have this check? Do we have this many people in this that fall into this category? Check. And it hasn't been about, how do we integrate people? How do we, and that's when you think about diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, whatever acronym you're using at your company, that diversity part is really just in the door. And that's where the check the box comes in. That part about inclusion and belonging is, is really different, a little bit harder to get at, but arguably more important in the long term because that's what drives that innovation that Josh was talking about. That's what drives people staying there. And I think that goes to the, the podcast that we all read before this. Josh, I'm forgetting his name. No, oh, the best, like the best, the the one with Garo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he was talking a bit about this too. And we we're starting to see flickers of people talking about this on Wall Street, which is that it isn't check the box isn't working. Traditional DEI kind of education, really, you need to learn this lesson, learn this lesson, learn this lesson. That does not bring people together. To Josh's point, that does not create that sense of inclusion. If instead you just talk about, hey, this is my experience, this is my reality, this is what I'm bringing to the table. And maybe it is as a single mom, really, because childcare is very broken in this country. Maybe it is, I don't know where to put my kid. I don't have that option. Or the childcare that I had before COVID is now shut down and you want to stack in an office. And I have nothing within a 45 minute drive that has extended hours. And you're telling me we need to be back here until 5 p.m. And my childcare has now mandated that it has to be at 4.30. And so I'm going to have to leave the office at 3.30. Whereas instead, if I worked from home those days, maybe I'd get extra hours. Whatever the case may be, it's specific to each person. The point is everybody's got something on their mind when they come into the workplace every day. And it's way less about drilling down, you have to learn this or you're wrong because of this, and way more about how do we make sure that it is a culture where somebody in that position does feel comfortable saying, hey, this is, this is the reality that I'm dealing with and it's clouding up a lot of my mental space and it's also starting to create an issue for me because it's cutting into my hours or whatever it is. And I think most employers haven't focused on creating that kind of, culture where somebody can step forward and say that unless they are already at the top, but they usually have different, different concerns on their mind. So what's the biggest barrier that you, uh, 
have to opening the doors to talk to people because it seems to me that what you're saying makes perfect sense, but it also seems to me that you're fighting against a fair amount of inertia. It's a good, it's a good, I think the funny thing is like when we talk to somebody who gets it, like they'll just, they like, get it. like I'm in, I'm sold. I want to do this. Other people take a little bit more cajoling or cajoling. I, listen, I mean, this goes into, I don't know if we have the right, I don't know if we have the right answer at this point to, to tell you. I think either people are slowly making the transition to realizing it. I think it also depends on the culture and the culture of the company can be, and this is a totally legitimate culture, by the way, is like, we are eat what you kill every man for himself. Compensation's always like, if that's how you want to operate, that's fine. I think that also wouldn't be a good fit for us. Cause you know, life is like, I don't want to work with assholes either. And that's, we're not gonna be able to support them. And so like, I think you have a big approach. You always talk about how like, you yourself will get value if you create values for others right? Like create value for the, the pie is not finite, it's infinite. And so how do we grow it together? It's the same approach. Those are the kind of companies that we also want to work with. So people that have that orientation are committed to making that, I think will also realize the benefits. You know, culture in many ways is intangible, but there are elements that you can measure. So you have to, you have to find people who are committed to making that, who, are, who want to invest for the long term to better their products, to better their services, to better their people. And know that like, that might not be that payoff might not be in three months or next quarter, but you know, we'll be better positioned longer. It's, it's that owner's mindset. I think it's also that people don't necessarily know where this sits. And so it's kind of, well, this impacts everybody in our company. And we sometimes see that with some of our clients, it's been a bit of a pass the hat approach. A little bit comes out of a DEI budget. A little bit comes out of an L and D budget. A little bit comes out of an HR budget. But I think by and large, two things. One, it just isn't something that companies have had to focus on before. Yeah, there's been people leading the pack who are exceptional and have great culture and we're way ahead of the curve. But the majority of companies out there haven't really had to dig in and focus on this. And I think that's why, you know, if you look up culture head or head of culture, head of people in culture, chief culture officer on LinkedIn, there's not that many. And I know because I've cold emailed most of them. There's not that (laughs) many out there. And so you're, you know, you're just starting to see this be something that companies are really investing in, in kind of a long-term owner's mindset to Josh's point. And I also think culture is a funky one where sometimes people have a reaction of, oh, should we be doing this all internally? And the answer is if you can, great. Most companies can't. And there is a certain level of comfort that employees feel when something isn't hosted by HR. There is still a bad rep around HR. There is still a, I don't know if this is coming into my performance review. I don't know where this is getting reported when it's hosted internally by a company. So we also work with some companies that have phenomenal cultures and still bring us in because they want that comfort of the third party. So their people feel they can really open up, really share, really dig in. But I, but I do think companies are just now starting to get comfortable with culture might be something where we need some outside support. You might need to have a circle of trust. You know, <laughs> exactly. Like, like you, this is a safe space. You can <laughs> say something. Greg, you are outside the circle of trust. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> hmm. How, how, uh, like, what's the smallest client you'll work with? It's a good. We have companies that are, we're close to, we're about to close knock on wood with, uh, they're a small nonprofit. They're about 80 people. Our largest partner is T-Mobile. They're 90, 90 ish, 85, 90,000 yeah. people. 
And speaking of culture, I mean, there's there we work with their employee experience team, and like, and a, a lot of listeners here will know T-Mobile. I mean, super well. I mean, that is a phenomenal culture. They bleed magenta. They put the resources around it because they get it. They have the ROI. And interestingly enough, too, like everything starts with the front line there. So if there's no benefits that go to corporate, really, that don't go to people in the store or out in the field, like the field gets it, the stores get it. They get time off to participate in the kind of conversations that we host for them. They do a lottery system. They view it as like part of the growth of their employees and part of their retention strategy and the culture strategy of that. So it's really phenomenal. So the cool thing about what we do is it can scale up or scale down very easily. Hmm. I like that. Uh, I mean, you just see it in the results with T-Mobile, right? Like just open up the financials, compare them to the competitors, and it's not too hard to see the trend over time. Correct. And it's it's the leadership is really bought in, right? To your point earlier, Bill, about you, you know, there's people you've talked with that you can see them being like, I don't know. Listen, that their leadership team is super bought in, publicly, openly, aggressively bought into building that magenta culture. And it does, to Josh's point, you see it from the bottom, you see it from brand new employees, entry-level employees, all the way up to the top C suite. And that creates something pretty unique that does outperform, not surprisingly. Yeah, that's cool. What's been the hardest thing about uh, being a founder for, for the two of you? <laughs> Naming was not a pretty thing. That was <laughs> biggest thing. I was like, Josh and I, so we met in business school. We really bonded on a ski trip because we're both pretty mediocre skiers who are much more into apres ski than we were into skiing, which is really what brought us together. But listen, you, when you start a company with somebody, it is, I mean, I am married with kids, but this is a second marriage, right? You spend a lot of time together, talking, doing everything. I, I think the hardest part for me is I had, I have two so far, hopefully more, but I had both my kids during this. And when you're building a company, there is, I took zero days of maternity leave. I was like emailing from the hospital bed both times. So that was a not awesome experience, but, but we got through it. Yeah. I, I would define that as not awesome. <laughs> I think, I mean, like everyone will say this, but I mean, it's a roller coaster. I think there's, I, I like posted about this. I don't have any followers and I don't know, but like the idea is that like, I think a lot of us measure ourselves on like big achievements, right? Like it's like, I don't know, like you, you did X or you got X bonus or like these big demarcation points in your career, but in aggregate really you're only gonna have a handful of them. But what we forget is like the little stuff in between, like the daily progress. And I think as a founder, you can get really tied up in the day-to-day swings and you have to be really good about managing your emotions, which is not very different than being an investor, right? Like how do I kind of stay the course, do what I do is really important to also take a step back at times and say, holy shit, like what I've done and what I'm creating is really great. And Liz and I have taken a very different approach to building a company, which goes back into the idea too, of like, we fully bootstrap this company. Like I haven't taken a paycheck, which is, which is really hard. But on the other hand, like, I think we're building something that's really impressive. So the day-to-day fluctuations of like not getting the deal closer, like sometimes you're like, this is the dumbest thing I've ever done. Like, why am I doing this? I could go work from somebody else and do really well. But then you take a step back and say, wait a minute, I'm actually building something that's impacting people's lives. I think you can do well and do good. And I think that's where we're going. So that was a long-winded answer, but I think it's like not getting caught up in the day-to-day fluctuations of your emotions and just kind of staying the course. That's hard. Yeah, I would imagine. <laughs> 
yeah. I'd imagine like the the first first client was just like cloud nine type stuff, and then you know I don't know. Yeah. That's, uh, and you're Our doing it for each client. other, right? Like you got you got a partner that you care about, so it's cool. Yeah, yeah. Our first partner was uh, True Panion. Oh yeah, which was super cool. Yeah. Hmm. I think I sent you a Kunick fleece that day when we closed <laughs> it. Our first, our first and only swag, and you had yeah. it. <laughs> I'm, I'm actually looking at pet insurance right now, so we'll see. We have a lot of thoughts we'll take offline about pet insurance because we both have dogs and we have separate pet insurance. Josh and I, different, different companies. Yeah, well, Happy I do to need share your help you. on that. I was, I was talking yeah. to somebody about this puppy, and uh, they told me like she likes socks. And they're like, yeah, she's going to swallow a sock and you're going to be out yeah. like 1400 bucks. You need pet insurance. And then I realized like, oh, okay. That's, I just went to the vet. They said she's got to get a root canal. You know, <laughs> pets are wild. So how old are you two kids? Uh, two and a half and one. And you have a dog. Mm-hmm. How old is said dog? Four. All right. Well, at least it's not a puppy. Sheesh. No. And you want to have another child. She's energetic, though. We do. Yeah. Soon? Which Josh is, like, very intimately involved. (laughs) I hope not too intimately involved. (laughs) No, I meant, like, he knows all of the plans. Like, I'm not bursting his the plan. Good Lord. No, I'm just bursting the plan bubble on having another kid. I just wanted to make that clear. Oh, my God. Uh, um, you're the one that said it not me i know it's true it's true i just meant this isn't this isn't my co-founder finding out for the first time on a podcast that we want another kid because that'd be that's what we do on the share well it's actually a business brew i just had a trademark dispute oh oh, see that's why naming is tough yeah i was like how is this even happening some random person then i gotta pay lawyers and stuff it's ridiculous yeah oh well it's wild yeah well, this is what you find out, right? It's super fun. You learn by doing. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. Well, I would I would advise you, even though you didn't ask, to have the child quicker than not because uh Oh no, we're 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 in pro we're trying. All right. Well, I'm rooting for you. You have uh, three? Yeah. Or four? Yeah, no, three. Okay. They're, and what's uh, the span? I I'm ninety eight percent sure they're eight, six, and four. <laughs> 98% is all you need. That's great. Yeah, no, I, th- I think I have that right. But, I, but the, when we had the third, we were just like, we got to do this now. Otherwise, it's never going to happen. Oh, yeah. No, we're in the same boat. It's, it's got to, we got to keep it quick or else, or else we're going lose, to lose the momentum. Yeah, I'm glad we had the third. Uh, I wasn't so sure on the first. My wife was eight months pregnant, looked at me, and she's like, is this a mistake? And I looked at her and said, maybe, which is not the right <laughs> response. <laughs> That's so not the right. I'll tell you though, my husband it was not far off from you. He thought that I was like, I don't know, wrong about being pregnant. So we went in for the first ultrasound, the first one, the heartbeat comes on the speaker and he faints in the doctor's office. It go. was like out of a wrong com. And he was like, I didn't think it was true until we were in here. So yeah. he was with you, a little reluctant on the first. I would I mean, I would to be fair, I was wrong, right? I mean, I, I love my first enough to have two more, but at the time, I had no exactly. idea. Like we had a great life and no kids, and she was like, "Cause this, cause this is and mistake. no dog. It could be, <laughs> yeah." All right. Well, we can get back to talking about y'all. So what? I mean, what else should we talk about? I, I want to hang with you guys. I like talking to you. <laughs> I thought the. Uh, did you want to talk about the invest like the best? Yeah, sure. Uh, podcast because I yeah. know you mentioned that. One thing is that it was uh, I I I didn't I didn't 
I didn't know him. I don't know him. But I looked, he was one year ahead of me at Penn. So I was like, man, this guy, I don't know what, he, he's done something really right in this, about the same duration of a career that I have not yet to figure out. But You're on the way, I, Josh. We're on the way. That's what Liz told me today. <laughs> one, I thought it was super cool that he's thinking this way and building a team that is super focused on that thought leadership around diversity and voices of opinion inside the firm and building for the long term, right? Like that, like it just made so much sense. And I don't understand why you don't think about it. It's actually interesting too. I don't know if you ever read Southeastern's letters, but Sometimes. you know, they, yeah, like I, I, I noticed that I read the, like the three Q, uh, like I guess in the fall and you know, they were, I don't know if it's the first time they put it in there, but like, you know, we're actively thinking about D and I and diversity of, of our team. I was like, wow, this is so cool. Like now this is like starting to catch on. I thought what was really interesting too, though, and this, this, there was a HBS study that just got published this week. And I sent you the screenshot bill, but I don't know if you remember it. It basically looked at that's idea of diversity, yeah. psychological safety and team performance. And the more diverse your team is, doesn't necessarily translate to team performance, which some people had talked about before, but it's the element of psychological safety too. So if you have the combination of diversity of thought or people, plus the space and culture where there's a psychologically safe environment, then you like, you're up and to the right. right? Yeah, this is what I was saying about you guys facilitating this kind of conversation, right? It's like all of a sudden everybody can get in a room and have a talk. And especially if you can figure out how to do it and have it be something that people are looking forward to, like that's got to be so powerful. Yeah, I mean, listen, this has been done for a long time too. I mean, but it's historically been practiced often, like my brothers and YPO. Like YPO has done this in a really great way, where it's like you know across companies, but it's all these leaders and managers coming together to be very vulnerable about their challenges, maybe in you know at, at the business and leading their teams, but coming together from a cohort perspective with facilitators who are you know excellent at whatever that topic might be, and. People love YPO. Like my brother, they, a lot of people claim it's some of the best thing that they've ever done. So, like, why can't companies do a similar thing internally? And I think that's idea. And I think you're, you know, he mentioned doing offsites where I think they're doing a lot of that work, and I think that's really critical. Obviously, different doing that at a fifty-person company where maybe they can kind of manage it themselves versus like really large companies. But a, a mentor of ours, he was head of HR at Capital Group, and Capital Group's probably one of the only financial firms that I know of that historically has been doing this at scale for a really, really long time. Like people don't leave capital. Like I, Hmm. you know, they treat you incredibly well. They invest heavily in their people. You're obviously paid incredibly well, right? Whatever they have one and a half trillion dollars of AUM or whatever it is. But, you know, people stay because they build a culture and they have those, that thing. So you you need to figure out a way to build it. And it's, this is like evidence backed, like this is real stuff, but it's tricky to manage and do. Yeah, yeah, I, I I know uh, the guys at WCM are thinking about some cool things. And when I was talking to them about it, I was like, "That is, you know, I mean, it's not like we talk often, but when they when they told me about it, I was like, this is really forward thinking.' And I think it could. I'm excited for them because I think if they do it the right way, it could be really, really cool. And I think they're thinking about it the right way. Well, and they're building a business for the long term. Right? Yeah. They're not just focused on like maximum rent extra- rent extraction for the short term, right? Yeah. I think they're probably thinking about how do we create WCM and to be in the next capital group or something like that. That's going to be around for a long period of time. Maybe they don't want to be that big, 
but like how do we build a sustainable durable franchise and business that's really critical but i think a lot of people in the hedge fund space are more optimized towards getting paid as much as possible in a short window of time and moving on with their life which is fine it's just totally different yeah i i think that's probably true i mean i mean i don't i don't know about most people in the hedge fund space but i know that if i was building my own firm i would be more aligned with trying to figure out I just think um, talent stuff to keep and, and it's the, I, I've heard like, you know, my dad's generation or whatever has always told me like, you know, employees just don't care about the companies like they used to. And my retort was always like, it doesn't seem to me that companies care about employees like they used to either. Yeah. So this is maybe a, a way to change that. Yeah. I mean, I think so. I mean, I I think if you can show a company, if a company can show to their employees that they care about them and then they're staying with them, it's very different. And people will stick with you. But it has to be a two-way street. I think historically, I think what we're helping, like a, a pithy way to think about it is we're helping companies go from talking you know, at or to their employees to talking with them. And it's like a subtle shift, but it's really important. How do you do this without people be like, being like, oh, here's another training? It's not, not training. <laughs> yeah, but you know <laughs> what I mean? So how do you, how do you like, how do you, how is it something that people look forward to? I mean, I know that you said the end result is that, that people really enjoy it, but like when you're thinking up the program and whatnot, how are you, how yeah. do you say to yourselves, how can we do something that people are excited about doing and participating in rather than like another module or whatever? Completely. I, I, you know, listen, we both have been in that seat and thought about, God, I see that on my calendar and I don't want to go. And so that was a big part of thinking about, to your point, how we designed it. And I, there's a couple of things that we found have worked really well for that. Part of it is this subject, really nailing things that matter to people. So that's a lot of social listening. That's paying attention to what's being written in the paper, on Twitter, on LinkedIn, all over the place. What are people talking about? What are they complaining about? What are they stressed about? And then focusing on those topics. So it's not just, you know, your typical 101 type lesson or training to your point. It's thinking way beyond that in terms of this is something that somebody's going to read specifically the title of this event and say, oh, that's me. I want to go hear that. That's one is thinking really in depth about the content. Two is we always try and drive engagement. So it's never death by PowerPoint. We don't use webinar modes. It really is about getting people across different departments, different groups, different seniority levels into one space and hearing from each other. And naturally, humans like to gossip. So they want to hear what other people are saying. They want to know what Bill's sharing in that conversation that otherwise they may have missed out on. So there is a certain level of you know, FOMO or I want to hear or that that comes in. And then the other thing that we do a lot of is bringing in different leadership for things like fireside chats and roundtables and not the leader who is always on podcasts, always being interviewed, who you've heard from a million times, but maybe somebody at a senior level who nobody really knows about, who doesn't share that often, who is never in the press or in the media. We often will start within the first you know, three months of programming, doing a fireside or a roundtable with one to two of those people, because that draws people into just that you know pure human nature of, oh, geez, I want to hear what's personal to them, what's vulnerable to them, and we'll bring them in for a very kind of more intimate conversation. 
And what we've also seen, frankly, is people come once and maybe it's somewhat, depending on the company, maybe it's somewhat mandatory, not mandatory, but highly encouraged, highly recommended. And ideally, we're doing our job well enough. And so far, we have been, knock on wood, that people talk about it. And we've seen a lot of that. There's kind of a step every time we have one, we have more people come to it when they're open. If it's a cohort, of course, that's a little different. But by and large, people are talking about it. There's a bit of a word of mouth that goes along with it too. Josh, I don't know what I'm missing on that. Yeah, the, uh, the big thing is that we're only as good as the experts that we bring in from inside to work with yeah. our partners. Like that is like, it's not Liz and I leading these sessions. So I spend a ton of my time vetting, diligencing, and speaking to experts. And what makes us different about that, it's not just like in-house trainers. There's no like Kunick five-step solution to get your workforce on track. We're just putting the same module together and repeating, which by the way, is super boring. And that's what most people get. So we find yeah. a lot of people. Yeah, it's true. It's like we find a mix of people who might be professional coaches, but also that are real life businessmen or women working in seats. So it's much more relatable. So like we have an amazing guy who he runs a pretty large company and then the financial crisis happened and he had the choice of basically either firing 50% of his employees or closing his office and keeping everybody, but just going to distribute a team, which was really early to do that. And he did that and he's learned a ton about running and managing a digital, you know, like a distributed team. Wow. So hang on. So he chose to shut his office down and keep his employees rather than keep his employees. In a way. Wow. Yeah, in a way. Yeah. And so what's really interesting about him, and this is really cool. So like he has a whole framework around meeting, like, like let's take like a systemic approach to burnout, right? Like burnout is a cumulative impact of pressure over time. But what causes pressure is like endless Zoom meetings. You don't need to be involved. In, like people are dying by Zoom meetings right now. It's like people are over meeting. That's like the big, one of the biggest complaints you can hear about. So he has a whole framework about like a mental model, different types of meetings, who gets called into when. But it's like a structural approach to actually how to manage and distribute a team. But like that matters. But like people don't know this. Like we often use the, you know, the analogy that people are kind of treading water currently with as it goes to like remote and hybrid management. But there are practices where you can start moving from that to like operating at like the AP level. And it, the, it has to be intentional. There's deliberate ways to do it. It's like a lot of people that like that are like, people are going to pay attention to Chris when he speaks. And Chris's title is not another effing meeting. So people say, <laughs> yeah. okay, this isn't another e-learning module that I yeah. have to log into and watch on my own. They're like, not another effing meeting. Yeah, I feel that. I don't want another effing meeting. I'm going to go to this one. Yeah, and it's totally. that combination, the title, the content, the expert that brings it into a place where people say, okay, cool, I'm going to join. Can you tease his framework at all? Like what's, uh, what's his framework? Yeah, I mean, there, there are a few different ones, but it's like, it's just the ideas around like who needs to be in what kind of meeting when, like when are you doing all hands? Like when are you doing smaller ones? How are you making use of note-taking and Zooms and creating asynchronous content that people who are not there could be on the periphery and still get access to? Comes into a lot of these systems and structures around communication, sharing information across teams in a distributed manner. It's kind of the, the short way to think about it. But, hmm. you know, that is, is really critical. Do you know you who see? you guys... And, and duration too. Yeah. Duration, yeah. I think you should meet Troy from Stream. He he's a really interesting like systems thinker. I did a a podcast with him and now seeing how they operate like the way that he's got the email there and and who CC'd and who jumps in when. I was like, "Man, this is an efficient machine." 
and it's and yeah. and it require it's it's so easy to tell that like it was thought about on the front end and that's why the back end runs smoothly and i'm i'm 98 sure they're very distributed so it'd probably be a decent connection for you totally and like that's a perfect person we would love like we have the privilege of working with this gentleman named darren murph who's head of remote at GitLab, and um you know they just went public they've been fully distributed forever and he's just like this knowledge guru of all things asynchronous and communication wise. And so we bring him in to work with our partners too. So like we're bringing in like thought leaders in the space of work and life to, to bring these conversations together. We're working with a very large media company who I won't name, who's this is a way on like kind of the social aspect. They're like, we're really struggling with our relationship between our community, with our entertainers mm-hmm. around politics around all the social issues it's that are going Spotify, on. The world. Just, <laughs> it's not Spotify. <laughs> and so like, Could you know, be. we're, we're bringing in, <laughs> you know, this professor literally like kind of wrote the book about diversity in media and like, what does that mean? And kind of, we'll, but we'll make it fun. So it's like, we'll show clips from a movie or from a song and like lead a discussion around it. So it's like, it's fun. Like that's what we say. It's kind of recess for work. Like I'm a geek. Like I could go to school all the time and like, you know, take all these fun, interesting courses. And like, why can't you kind of create that same, a similar atmosphere of that idea of learning connection and growth inside of a company where it's, it's not by, it's not by pulling teeth. Media would be interesting because Hollywood is so, they peacock a lot with their politics. So I would think that it creates issues internally because I I mean, if you have a truly diverse organization, by definition, it shouldn't be any more than 60, 40 one way politically. So I, I would think that a, an industry that is constantly putting itself in the, the spotlight politically would create some really unique situations. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, I mean, all, all those big tech companies have, you know, product inclusion people who are really focused on this in a very deep way. But but even, um, I guess to facilitate a conversation, especially around politics, has got to be so difficult. But if you can do it and you can allow people to feel heard and actually keep things respectful, I think that that would be pretty cool. But that would be tough. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I don't. I know you're not doing it around politics. I'm just saying. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. We're not. Not around politics, but we've done stuff like interfaith, for example, which faith is one that can get dicey in the workplace, and not everybody always wants to talk about or always wants to broach. And so there are, you know, and we've done with certain companies work on diversity that I think to an earlier point, not everybody in the company feels the same way. Some are very on the woke side. Some are very on the more traditional conservative side and a lot are in the middle. And so whether or not it's politics or faith or something around diversity, there are conversations that drive a bit of conflict, drive a bit of different opinions. And that's a huge aspect of what we do in the vetting of the experts is can they navigate this? Can they facilitate it? And, and that's also why for companies, the employer can say, you know, the employer is bringing in Kunik as a resource to host this conversation. It's really different if the employer is saying, I want you guys to talk about faith in the workplace, as opposed to saying, we are opening up this space to talk about faith in the workplace with a third party who are experts on how to have these conversations. It enables an employer to go into places and you know, kind of tackle subjects that otherwise might be hard for them to do on their own. And that's also why on every single conversation we have, no, Josh and I are not facilitating it, but somebody from our team is on there with the expert. 
So there's our team personally is trained in how to navigate those conversations. They're then in there with the experts to make sure that these do run. Because to your point, if people can open up and talk about it, it removes friction. It removes tension. It creates more understanding and bonds that lead to more trust. But a lot of people just don't know how to open that up and have that conversation. So we absolutely help with with topics like that. Not exclusively, but it is a place we go. Yeah. Yeah, that's... um. I think it's uh it's cool to uh it's um the employer it, it relieves some pressure from the employee to have you be the third party to facilitate the conversation rather than the employer saying like hey you're all going to do this and because then you I would think people feel like they're almost being like graded on on participation or something totally. whereas if you're just yeah. a impartial third party it 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 yeah defenses get reduced. And importantly too, we don't track any, we don't collect any kind of the personal information. It's not going to, you don't have the Ray Dalio system where people are ranking what each other is saying and feeling. (laughs) No, no. And so that, that's really critical though. So it's like, you know, it's funny. It's like, we've gone really kind of like back to basics in many ways where everybody else is kind of moving to like more data, more apps. Like we track certain parts of data, but we think it's really important to just create like, take the cigarette break, take the kombucha bar, whatever it was based on people having conversations with each other. And like that can't be replicated any other way that I know. You can't put an app for that. Can't put, yeah, you can't. There's no apps going to create that. There are people creating like, we'll message you on Slack. Like, have you met Bill? You should meet him for a coffee. But like, like that's not really as effective, I think, as getting people in a room having a conversation about these things. And I think that the idea too is like to help companies move from having reactive stances to many things to having, you know, active positions with their people and being able to facilitate it. So like some of the, I'd say one of the most proud moments was like we we worked with a Bay Area tech company and then in April of last year, there was all that anti-Asian hate going on. And they had a decent sized Asian population. They're based in the Bay. And we facilitated a conversation kind of, for the Asian community to come forward and everybody else in the firm attended, but as listeners. And so let's hear from Bob and who you never talked to before, but he's talking, he's crying. Cause he's like, yeah, like I'm, you know, my father's in a different city and he went to a supermarket and was like cursed out or pushed or something like, you know, people are like crying and cheering, but it like creates a whole different sense of vulnerability and like understanding of who the people are that you work with. And it contextualizes a lot of what people are experiencing, what you might read about in a really human way. And that's not everything that we do, but like to be able to do that for your people, like, I don't know, I got to believe that everybody in that room or virtual room, like left feeling like changed in a, in a really important way. Yeah. I, I, um, I mean, I, I referenced my old employer before, but, but the the bank that it was before BMO bought it was Harris. And I do think that what they did do was they did a very good job at having conversations like this and highlighting like these conversations are going on. And the tenure of a lot of the bankers is incredible. And like part of it's that it's a nice life to be a banker there. But part of it too is like, it really was a nice community to be a part of. I mean, there's a lot of good people there and they're they're working towards a common goal and trying to help like middle market borrowers and stuff was, uh, you know, I think it's a noble pursuit. And then around that, I think that the employer did a good job at creating a community and trying their best to foster conversations. So 
I have seen it a little bit up close and personal, and and it's hard to argue that the retention numbers didn't speak uh, well as a result. And I think that they probably get a a little bit of benefit because they may not pay market. Yeah, but it's also yeah. But it doesn't matter because people stay. (laughs) Right, and they have community. It's huge. Yeah. But it also can be self-serving. So like um, one of the most common conversations that we host in series that we'll do is, is around stress and burnout, right? But like there's a clear performance angle to that too. How do I get my people to be less stressed and be more productive? It benefits everybody. And that's one that we'll do. We do a lot and it's a really cool approach. And like that'd be a cool one maybe even to do for if you ever want to do it, we could bring one of our experts on and do like a spaces on it or something like that. Because she has a really cool mental model that's really applicable that can help people start understanding what you're experiencing, why you're experiencing, and actually how to like deal with it. But that's that is a clear like <laughs> like it is self-serving, right? It's like I want my people to increase productivity and here's how we do it, but it's also something that's better for everybody inside the organization too. Liz, you look like you have something to say. No, I was just going to say, I, th- I think the line between self-serving and, and building that, I mean, it's the same as making a manager better, right? If you right. build a better manager and you do a lot of, which we do a ton of work with managers, because especially right now, new managers are often being promoted, not in their traditional workplace, maybe not for the skills. I, you mentioned Jared Murph earlier, Josh, we bring him in. He talks a lot about, you know, in old, when everybody was sitting next to each other in a cubicle, managers could really kind of just direct your work. They could physically look at your computer screen and say, Mm. that's not right, Bill. That's not right, Bill. That's not right, Bill. And so their technical skills were able to compensate for any other gap because they could literally direct your work, decide when you were in a meeting or not, bring you in, see when you were talking or not, all of that. You can't do that in a hybrid world. You definitely can't do it in a remote world. And so Darren talks a lot about, okay, how do I unblock for Bill? If I can't physically direct his work anymore, I need a different set of skills which allows Bill to come to me the minute he gets stuck and say, hmm. Darren, I don't know how to do this. I don't know who to contact. I don't know where to get help or whatever it is. Going to your manager and saying that requires a massive amount of organizational trust to go say, help, put your hand up and say, I don't know where to go. Most teams weren't built on that sense of unblocking. And in a remote and hybrid world, a manager's job is really to unblock and allow those the rest of your team to just run forward and produce as quickly as they can, collaborate as much as they can, and drive better results. But if you're using an old model of sitting next to each other and correcting their work together, that's you're going to fall flat on your face. And so, yes, that is self-serving in the sense that you're building better teams and building better managers and building, frankly, better individual contributors along the way. But it also is to the benefit of creating that kind of trust and human connection within a firm. So I think the, the two kind of intersect a lot. I would, I would just think, I mean... I was in an awful mood yesterday. I was down and like I, I wasn't seeing positivity and like I, I started to think about it and I was like, you know, I guess that part of me thought that we would get through COVID and then I wouldn't have to worry about the next horrible headlines in the world. And mm-hmm. now it's like just when COVID feels like it's over, which God knows it may not be. All of a sudden, commodities are flying because of war in Russia and like you're seeing schools getting bombed. And it's just like, what in the hell is going on? And that's outside of work, right? And then inside of work, to your points on people have been remote. And I think that that puts a lot more uh, 
well, I think it has the potential to put more stress on the individual. I would think burnout is something that would be like a major, major topic right now. Oh my God, it's rampant. There's, yeah. It is, it is by far, as Josh said, the biggest conversation we do. And we do it often multiple times from multiple approaches across different levels within the organization. Burnout for teams. How are managers recognizing and combating burnout for their individuals? How are managers avoiding burnout on there? I mean, you have to attack it from multiple different perspectives because there is no one, there is no silver bullet for burnout, but there are a lot of very practical steps you can take and address as an individual, as a leader, and as a teammate, and as an organization on how you're changing from everything to how your managers run a team, to meetings, to Josh's point, to how you think about and contextualize it. I think, I mean, you know, there's a lot of focus on self-care when it comes to burnout, but we cannot yoga our way out of the burnout that is happening across this country and these these organizations nice. right now. So yeah. it'd be great. It's not going to happen. <laughs> yeah, your Peloton helps. Yeah, like, but related to that, a really common theme too that we're, we we work on a lot too. That's related to this because you were talking about like I was. Um, she's pretty amazing, and, but it's like happiness in dark times, and so like cultivating inner resilience, right? Hmm. Yeah, but like that's a huge topic that companies should think about. Also, right, and so that's something we work a lot. The weather could be resilience from being a woman working in a male-dominated industry and dealing with all those kind of really complexity or microaggressions or kind of discrimination that you have to face every single day, and having the space around that. Let's bring the women together, have a conversation about that. But it's also just in general. So, like one of the experts that we work with there, like she started her career as basically being a social worker working with families who whose kids were in cancer wards, right, and like mm. dealing with. But what she noticed and what set her off in her career was that some com- some families would thrive and some some would sink. And the question was, why did some thrive and why did some sink? Not thrive, but like manage better and come closer and leave. And they were dealing with one of the, I don't, I can't really, there's probably nothing harder in life than losing a child, right? So that set her off and she now can deliver something similar to, in, a, in like, how do you find your inner strength and inner resilience when things don't seem to be going really well, whether in the world or personally? Yeah. Hmm. Now you got me thinking about losing children. I was going to say that we got to change this conversation. Yeah. I've seen a lot of it. My grandma's buried two kids. She just buried her stepkid. And I see it, you know, I don't know when people say like, oh, I want to live to a hundred. I've seen so much tragedy in my life in 40 years that I'm not trying to live to a hundred, which is kind of a sad outlook, but it's, uh, yeah, but you've also got three kids. So that might change. Huh? But you have three kids to live to 104, too. I mean, there's That's tragedy true. and blessings. And I'm going to be a helicopter parent, and I'm going to have them in bubbles, <laughs> so nothing will ever happen to them. Exactly. You're going to <laughs> snowplow a parent out any challenge that comes towards them. Totally. That's <laughs> uh, funny. Trying to protect three boys. It's uh, it's not going to go well. Oh, all three of yours are boys? Wow. Yeah, the okay. puppy's a girl. So that's how I got my, <laughs> Thank God. my daughter. Yeah, no, they're I out of their mind. Really, you can hear them now. They, they, they don't shut up. I, I love you guys. but No, but that's a lot of energy, three boys. Yeah, they're crazy. They're yeah. crazy. But uh, it's fun. It keeps me moderately young, I think. Yeah. It keeps you moving, if nothing yeah. else. <laughs> Well, I have I have uh, really enjoyed this, and I hope I hope that you two have as well. Absolutely, you know I think it's it's super cool. If you do want to set up that space, that would be fun. Yeah, we'd love to. Yeah, I think I think that would be really. Pro- I I think I I would love to do that. I I did like a while ago. I 
I noticed as people in like the FinTwit world, I think really struggling with burnout and stress. Yeah, it's I I think that's fair, especially in a bear market. Yeah, and then, yeah, th this was probably like maybe six months ago or something like that. And then I think people reached because I posted some, I mean, some people reached out, but I I I think also what's well, there's a lot of shame around that, which is interesting. I think there's a lot of machismo that's focused on like I can't say that I'm stressed and burned out. What were you going to say? You you're I've been I've been thinking the whole conversation. One of the things that I've been thinking about is I think it would, I think there's probably a mental barrier, especially among older men, but I think men generally about admitting some of these issues because it, it like, oh, oh, you're vulnerable. Like, how could you possibly admit that? So I was thinking that would be an issue. Like shame builds into that and all kinds of things. It, no, without a doubt it is. And that's part of why we do things like bring in male senior leaders to talk really candidly and openly because a lot of what we learn is by what we see. And so the more that you start seeing one conversation change, one conversation move somebody, one conversation connect with somebody, it builds on itself. But there's a huge, I mean, listen, I'm married to an Argentine who works in finance. So you've got like the Latin machismo, the finance <laughs> machismo. So I totally get it. Um, <laughs> but it does, but you can change it over time. Yeah, I think, but it also, and this is, you know, like if anyone is going to lead us and you're a leader inside your organization, I think that you have to lead from a, a place of vulnerability because that actually will buy people in. So it's as hard as that is to do, you will have the, it, it's critical. And I'll, I'll leave with this. I mean, a gentleman that we're so privileged to work with, he spent 24 years as a Marine fighter pilot turned school principal turned leadership coach. And like, no one's going to F with Pete, but Pete will also be so raw and so vulnerable about what he's good at and what he's bad at, his failings. But it's like, it's really critical. And at the end of the day, he always goes back to this. There's like this long study on human happiness that's still ongoing from Harvard. It's the longest it's ongoing. They keep it going. And like, what creates happiness in life? Do you know, Bill? Uh, the, number one, the number one thing. Experiences. And uh, I don't know. I'd throw in some thing about an inner scorecard. Yeah, it's pretty good. It's relationships. Yeah, and if that person has healthy relationships with their friends and family, I can't believe drive and colleagues. I'm sorry to all my friends. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What about your listeners, Bill? God. Well, yeah. that would be a lot of relationships. I love them. <laughs> so, some get very mad at me though. Sometimes I'm like, I'm just a dude. I don't know why you're so mad. But yeah, no, that makes sense. <laughs> but you know, but that inspires trust and commitment from teens or from family or friends. Like, so it all, it's, it's basic stuff. It's very hard, but it's somewhat simple. Yeah. Well, I, I think, uh, I, I think it would be awesome if we can set up a space. Let's, let's coordinate like when the podcast drops and then a, a time to do it after. But I, I think it would be a really cool example of what you do and hopefully give people a chance to see it in action. And, you know, I, I'm a, I'm a sales guy at heart, so I hope you get some leads from this. Uh, <laughs> we're, we're open. We're open for business. So uh, how can people uh, contact you? Yeah, you can go to get Kunik, K U N I K.com and, and reach us that way. You can also find me on Twitter and I guess, Bill, you can share or, that. Yeah. The, Twitter, the LinkedIn, whatever. Josh, yeah. Gulliver. pretty easy. 
All right. Well, thank you very much for joining. And uh, I hope it was an enjoyable experience. Yeah, it was awesome. Thank you so much. I liked the puppy break. Yeah, well, now I now I need to go tell my kids when I'm recording, be quiet, but whatever. <laughs> <laughs> the joy of uh, working from home, right? No exactly, doubt. exactly. All right, well, have a good one. You, you too, too. great Thank talking you. with you.